Hello and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarun Gupta and our guest today is Andy Bromberg, CEO of Eco. Eco is a consumer fintech app that lets you spend, save, send and make money all in one app, putting your financial life on autopilot. Eco has raised more than 90 million dollars from leading investors including Active and Capital, A16Z Crypto, Founders Fund, as well as from celebrities like Diddy, Kevin Durant and Tiffany Haddish. Prior to Eco, Andy was the co-founder and president of Coinlist, a leading platform for token sales, trading and other financial services for digital asset projects. Andy studied mathematics and computer science at Stanford University and co-founded the Stanford Bitcoin Group. Join me as we explore how Andy was introduced to crypto during a class, why he left an established venture like Coinlist to join Eco. how eco is working to maximize the wealth of the community why he is curious about the future of decentralized identity and much more hope you like the show hey andy thank you for joining us on the podcast today it's great to have you here how are you and where are you calling from i'm calling from austin and thank you for uh, for having me I'm re- i really appreciate it i'm excited to excited to talk so how is the weather in austin right now hot it's hot it's awesome <laughs> We're still still in the heat of summer, so it's uh, I think it's like 103 degrees today. Oh wow, that that is hot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's start the podcast, right? For our listeners who may not know, could you provide like an overview of your career and how you got involved in fintech? Yeah, sure thing. So um, by way of background, I was born outside of Boston, Massachusetts, but went to uh, went to Stanford University for undergrad, studied math, computer science there. And while I was there, I was really uh, fortunate. I took a class taught by uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who listeners might might know of. He uh, was a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. I uh, founded a company called Council. Founded a company called Earn.com. Sold it to Coinbase. Was Coinbase's CTO, and now is a, an investor and an author. He just published a book called The Network State, and he was my professor at the time um, for this class called Startup Engineering. And what was so great about that class is that. Uh, a group of us came out of that class and ended up forming with Balaji the Stanford Bitcoin Group. So this was back in 2012 or 2013. Uh, Balaji was pounding the table, telling us that Bitcoin was going to be a big deal, and uh, and convinced us to start the Stanford Bitcoin Group. And so we founded that group, and that's how I got into crypto originally was through co-founding that group and doing research and advocacy work and uh, and building a bunch of cool things. So I did that for a couple of years. I ended up leaving school in 2014. I uh, started a company called Sidewire in the political media space, ran that for 3 years through the election cycle and then founded Coinlist, um which uh is a, a large uh platform for the best digital asset companies to run their token sales and also offers an exchange product and a lending business and a whole bunch of other business lines. Uh so started that uh with my co-founders in 2017, ran that for 3 years um and then uh jumped over to Eco and Eco had been around since 2017. but uh I was just a advisor I was a founding advisor to the project and helped get it started it wasn't full time I was running running Coinlist and then in 2020 uh October 2020 I left Coinlist joined Eco uh and have been leading Eco ever since talk to me more about Eco so what is the company offers and like what inspired you to be a part Eco is is trying to put people's money back to work for them so what our foundational belief is is that your money's not working for you today it's working for banks and middlemen and all sorts of other parties and they're taking the upside of your money and so we want to fix that and that starts by building the eco app 
uh, which is an all-in-one digital wallet for your whole financial life, saving, spending, sending, saving, making money, all in one place. Um, and, uh, and it makes it really easy for you to do everything, get market leading rewards. You put money in, you get two and a half to 5% uh, in APY rewards, you get 5% cash back at major merchants like Amazon, Uber, and DoorDash. You get a bill pay service, a card feature, a whole bunch of other things coming down the pipeline. And really importantly, you also earn eco points. And these points are the beginnings of our experiment in what an open rewards currency could look like. What it would look like to build a reward system that's actually open and integratable by anyone. And that's ultimately where we're where we're headed. But right now, if you go to eco.com, what you'll see and be focused on is this really amazing consumer financial product that can replace your bank with something better. So one of the ideas behind eco is the idea of maximizing wealth of the community, right? What kind of drove you to focus on this problem statement or this facet of the industry? Yeah, I think it's it's just really a, a counterpoint to the way the world works today, which is uh, not maximizing the wealth of the community. And, uh, you know, I think businesses have have historically been really focused on, you know, taking as much from consumers as they can. Uh, and we, we think that there may be a better option out there, that we could actually build a more aligned product and put people's money back to work for them, maximize their wealth, and in so doing, build a really compelling large business ourselves. Uh, and so it's just a reframe on on the way the world works today and shifting to hopefully a more aligned uh, a more aligned model. Another venture that I noticed you're a part of is called Free World. Can you talk to us about what is self-sustaining not-for-profit and how did you end up being a part of Free World? Yeah, Free World's an amazing organization. Uh, just for brief background context, uh, we take uh, ex-felons, so people that are just leaving the prison system or formerly incarcerated, uh, we put them through truck driving school. We train them to take their CDL, commercial driving license permit tests. We take their permit tests, we put them through truck driving school, and then we place them in truck driving jobs. Um, and uh, and we're able to to take these these free agents, as we call them, and take them from just out of prison to earning often in their first year fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, and it only goes up from there. And so it's a way to end the cycle of mass incarceration and the cycle of generational poverty um, and uh, and try and break people out of that. And it's it's amazing. It works really well. We've served over 100 people and, uh, and placed them in jobs. So uh, the, the nonprofit's off to a great start. As part of that, we are, uh, as you said, a self-sustaining nonprofit. And what that means is that uh, we, with all of the free agents, have what are called income share agreements, where once they leave trucking school and get placed into a job, as long as they're working a trucking job, they pay a small portion of their paycheck back to Free World until they pay for themselves and the next person. And we call it the Pay It Forward program. And the free agents love it. It feels really powerful to them to be participating in solving the problem that they were once a part of, the cycle of generational poverty and incarceration. And so the, each free agent pays for themselves and for the next person that goes to the program. And so the nonprofit, uh, well, we, we do accept donations and, and you know, work to drive growth through increased philanthropic activity, its core model doesn't actually need that. It could survive and sustain and continue to grow forever with just, uh, you know, the people going through the program and, and paying it forward. Um, and I do think that's an important mindset shift that people draw a distinction between for-profits and not-for-profits, that not-for-profits can't have any sort of model that generates revenue. That's actually not true. They can have a model that generates revenue. It just can't be taken out of the nonprofit. It's not, it's not for the profit of the people that run the thing. But you can use revenue from a nonprofit to then go and do more good in the world. 
Uh, and so in some sense, Free World runs more like a for-profit startup, but is a nonprofit um, in that no one's taking money off the table. And do you think this this model is really scalable in the sense that we could have a lot more uh, ventures like this? Yeah, I think so. I think it makes a lot of sense. But it, the trick is that not every uh, nonprofit or not every philanthropic activity lends itself to this. Some things, there's not a clear way to earn any revenue off of the activity. And so the only way to make it happen is just to do philanthropic donations and have that fund the activities. But for for opportunities where you actually can create this flywheel, I think it's really powerful. And it's powerful because it drives more capital into the effort, which is really important. Uh, it makes it self-sustaining if you don't rely on anyone for funding the effort, which is really important if you want to have a continued impact. And in the way that Free World's done it, it's really empowering for the people in the program because they actually have a way to contribute back towards uh, the future. Um, and we've actually had people go through the program, finish their income share agreement, so pay for themselves and for the next person, and then ask if they can keep donating in the same way and say, I, I'd like to keep taking that portion out of my paycheck and giving it to Free World to pay for the next person, the next person. Um, and that's really empowering. And that's part of what we're, what we're after as well. Switching a bit to your background, right? You have been a part of the startup ecosystem for a while now. So what is that about this experience that really attracted you to this domain or this industry? And second, during your experience with CoinList, were there certain key learnings or challenges that really taught you and now you're bringing it to Eco? Yeah, it's cliche, but I think it's true. The thing that attracts me the most to startups and to, to early stage venture is just the idea that it's all people that are trying to make as big of a difference in the world as quickly as possible. And there are a lot of people out there that are seeking to make a big difference in the world and do really compelling things, but it doesn't always come with that same level of urgency, that same level of how quickly can we get to this better state of the world. Um, and that attitude is pervasive, I think, among, uh, among startups and early stage ventures. And so that's what attracts me to it because I have ways that I want to see the world get better and I would like to see them happen as quickly as possible. And so it's powerful to, unite with like-minded people who feel the same way and uh, and try and create that change. So that's that's what attracted me to, to startups, I think, in general. In terms of lessons learned at CoinList, there are a bunch. Obviously, I'm always learning uh, lessons about management and running companies. That, that cycle never ends. And so plenty of lessons there. But I also think there were some real lessons learned around crypto markets, right? We lived through, CoinList started during the ICO boom of 2017, it was crazy times, it felt like a gold rush. And then we lived through the crypto winter, 2018, 2019, and that, and then, you know, saw it come back in 2020 and, and, uh, and hit new highs. And, uh, and just managing through that uncertainty and managing through market cycles, I think was something that I learned a lot about at, at CoinList. Do you think the current economic uncertainty has any way impacted your vision or the growth plans for Eco? No, it hasn't. And frankly, because of that learning at CoinList, at CoinList, I learned that especially in crypto. So, you know, every cycle, every market uh, has cycles. Crypto has compounded cycles. They're so much more intense than most other markets. The highs are higher than most other markets. The lows are lower than most other markets. And it goes through these big, really meaningful cycles. And what I saw at CoinList and even before that was that the best companies that are in crypto or crypto adjacent are the ones that are able to invest through the downturns, that are able to keep investing, keep growing, keep doing things through the downturns, because you're going to come out of that at some point. And the people that are prepared for the next wave are the ones that really succeed. And 
we saw this with Coinbase. Um, they raised a bunch of money and, you know, were prepared for the winter in, in, uh, in 2014, 2015. And then they came out 2017 and, you know, were massively successful at CoinList. We saw it. We, you know, were able to keep investing through the winter of 2018, 2019, um, and came out of that with a lot of strength. And so at Eco, uh, last year, we made the decision to raise significant capital more than I think most companies at our stage raised uh, about $85 million over a, a six month period last year. And we were a team of 20 people at the time. And, uh, and we did that because we said, we want to, we don't know, we think a winter is coming at some point. We don't know when it's coming, but we want to be prepared and be able to invest through that and not have to raise capital during that. And so the overall economic outlook and, and the ecosystem right now uh, aren't really affecting us. We're on plan, we have the cash, uh, and we're continuing to invest and hire. And uh, it's frankly made it into one of the best hiring markets ever because we're growing. A lot of companies are not. And so we have the opportunity to, to bring on some really phenomenal people who uh, are no longer happy or, or, uh, or at their, their previous employer. And what is that you look for when you're picking who to onboard an investor? Like-minded and aligned and that you just get along with and know you'll be able to have positive conversations with and hard conversations with productively, uh, I think it's really important. So one of the biggest things I'm assessing is, is that fit. Um, the next thing is just their alignment with the vision and what you're trying to build. If someone's not deeply aligned with what you're trying to build and how you're thinking about building it, you're going to run into friction at some point, inevitably, if there's misalignment there. And so spending the time to really test that up front, uh, I think is, is critical. Um, beyond that, obviously, every investor can add value in different ways. Um, but uh, and I'm, I'm, I always want to see what that is and how they can. But for me, that's that's secondary to the alignment and the relationship, um, because the you know everyone adds value somehow, and it's just a matter of figuring out how to uh, how to leverage that most effectively. On on the flip side, are you looking to hire? If yes, what do you look for in potential teammates? We are definitely looking to hire. We have a bunch of bunch of roles open and more. Uh, opening up soon. Uh, we look for a bunch of things again, just same as the investors alignment with what we're trying to do. People who believe that people's money is not working for them today and it should be, and it can be, and there's a path to actually making that happen. And they, they understand that. Um, and so that alignment, I think is really critical. We also look for people with, uh, and again, it's cliche, but true, a lot of grit who are people that may come from atypical backgrounds or, uh, have unusual skill sets, but just are determined to make a difference and and really believe they can. Um, and we love to love to bet on people like that. And of course, we're looking for all the other things: great colleagues, highly intelligent, thoughtful, high integrity. All of that, of course, are things that we care about. Um, but uh, but I think above all else, the the alignment and the and the grit are really important to us. Another thing I would love to get your take on is: Are there any trends in the fintech or the crypto space specifically? that you're really excited about that you think will shape how the next three to five years look like? There's a bunch of things happening right now. I do think we're we're still seeing this wave of, on the fintech side, businesses starting up to serve every uh, use case and feature that fintech products need. So whether that's, you know, segregated accounts or it's bill pay or it's card products or it's anything, there are more and more businesses that are coming up allowing you to do those things really easily and programmatically. Um, and so I think what that does is it lowers the bar to entry for new fintech market participants, which obviously we've seen the effects of this over the last few years. I expect that it'll continue. Um, and it forces companies to really differentiate on true value proposition to the end user. 
as opposed to being able to differentiate based on having some regulatory mode or ability to add a feature that other competitors can't add. Now the features are becoming commoditized by virtue of these service providers. So people have to differentiate on the actual benefits that they offer their end users. And I think that's a good thing. So I think that's one, one trend that's affecting fintech in a meaningful way. On the crypto side, one thing I'm keeping my eye on and very interested in is uh, decentralized identity and reputation and some of the experiments that are happening there. And, uh, and I don't yet know what that'll look like, but it feels like the sort of thing that might have its moment in the sun soon where people start to figure out different mechanisms to allow for limited but, but valuable forms of decentralized identity and, and reputation, which will enable all sorts of really interesting uh, products and services that couldn't exist before. And do you think, are there certain trends or segments that are kind of overcrowded or that you are bearish on in general? Good question. I think um, I think there was a big rush into DAOs in crypto over the past couple of years, past year, really. And well, I think that DAOs are a powerful concept and will be around forever and are going to power some really interesting organizations. I do think the rush into everything being a DAO and everyone working for multiple DAOs and having all sorts of, I don't know that that's going to stick around. Um, and so I do think we'll see a little bit of a pullback in kind of overall DAO activity. Um, but I don't think that's an indictment of the entire space or technology. I think that's just, you know, maybe a little, we got a little bit over overzealous and overextended as an industry into, into that a little bit. Um, and then I also think that, you know, in line with what I talked about on the fintech side and uh, products needing to differentiate in, in more meaningful ways by benefits, I do wonder what's going to happen with this massive wave of neobanks that's popped up in the last couple of years all of which offer largely the same product features, but are really just focused around different marketing and different branding and, you know, maybe slightly different benefits at the margin for the specific customer base they're targeting. And it's it's unclear to me that that survives uh, as a trend going forward. So I'll be watching what happens with a lot of those neobanks over the next couple of years. For the last segment of the podcast, what I like to do is introduce you more as a person to our listeners so I will just ask you a rapid fire set of questions and please feel free to answer as you wish. So what is one fun fact about you that most people don't know? Oh, fun fact. Uh, so is a tough question. You know, I don't, I don't know how, how fun of a fun fact this is, but it's the first thing that came to mind is uh, meditation is a really important part of my life. And I, I got really deeply into meditation, you know, five or six years ago. Um, and since then it's been uh, a real, real cornerstone of, of what I do. So you know, no one ever sees me meditating. So I'm sitting in the corner in my room. Um, but that is a really important part of my life that I think a lot of people are, are less less aware of. What are some, you know, leaps of faith or big risks or like decisions that you took in your career that have led you to where you are right now? And how did you go about thinking about them at that point in time? You know, the biggest one, I think, was uh, was leaving CoinList to join Eco. Uh, Coinlist was and is an extremely successful company. Uh, was doing incredibly well. Uh, was on a clear upwards trajectory, and uh, and I, I left to join Eco. And I love, I still love Coinlist, and I think it's an incredible company. The reason I left was that I saw this opportunity at Eco to build towards this mission that I've always deeply believed in and thought that crypto could enable, which is putting people's money back to work for them and rethinking how the financial system works from the ground up. That's a mission I couldn't be more excited about. The team was this incredible team that I'd worked with and knew really well. And I think critically, 
there was kind of a hole in the company that was exactly my skill sets. It's not that my skill sets are particularly special or anything like that. It's just that there was a gap and I could fill it. And I was so bullish on the company. And so I, I took the leap. It's been an amazing decision. It also would have been great staying at CoinList, but uh, that could have gone a very different direction. Eco was much earlier stage. Uh, CoinList was on this, this kind of clear path. Uh, and so it was a big, a big leap, but I think it was, it was the right one. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give to your younger self? What advice would I give to my younger self? I think I would, I would probably tell him, and again, this is another thing that sounds cliche, but I think it's true, is, is just give it a shot, whatever it is. It's, you know, you rarely get penalized for trying something. Uh, and so take the leap, give it a shot, recognize that it's not like everyone else has all the answers and you don't. Everyone's figuring it out as, as they go and, and that's fine and that's, that's good. Uh, and so, yeah, if you think you have conviction in something, just do it. Don't worry about it and, and, and make the leap. If money was not a constraint, what would you be doing right now? Oh, I'd be doing the same thing. I, I'm not doing eco for, for money. Uh, and, you know, well, my salary is important and, hel- and helpful for me and, you know, being able to, to live somewhere and, and, and eat and all that stuff. Uh, I'm not doing it for money. Uh, I really think it's, it's something the world needs. It's, that's something I deeply believe. And, uh, and I'd be working on the exact same thing. If you, if you said, Hey, Andy, here's, here's a billion dollars. You can have it. It's all yours. I would say, awesome. Thank you. Super appreciative. And I'm going to get back to work now and, uh, and keep doing what I'm doing. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, I'm doing the right thing. If that's my, if that's my answer, I, I think it's important. I think if it's to the extent you have the luxury to be able to work on what you want to work on, which not everyone does, I'm extremely grateful to be in a position where I can work on what I'm deeply passionate about. Uh, if you're, if you have that luxury, you got to take advantage of it. There's no sense in, in not. And so finding that thing and working on it, uh, is, uh, is I think one of the highest priorities for, for anyone. I'm, I know this is a question that is sort of so common in job interviews, but I just want to ask it because I'm curious, where do you see yourself and where do you see eco in 10 years from now? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. 10 years, is a long time, 10 years, is a very long time. Uh, and I think that, um, what we're trying to do at the end of the day is rethink everything about how the financial system works from the ground up. Starting from, you know, the, the baseline of money and how it moves around and the infrastructure, the powers and all the way up to the products that people use to interface with money. And so in 10 years, I expect us to be in a situation where uh, eco has changed that paradigm, where people think about money differently. They think about financial infrastructure differently. They think about the, the products they use differently, um, all around this idea of things that are more aligned with them. Right now, all this technology is not aligned with the people that use it. It's aligned with the people that create it. But I think there's a world where it can be aligned with the people that use it. And I think if we've accomplished that, and then, uh, then I think we will have, we will have succeeded. Um, and I'll still be, I'll still be doing the thing. I'll hopefully still be leading it and, uh, and working on it every single day. And, uh, so at some level, although hopefully we will have, you know, reached more people in the world and, uh, and made more of a difference, uh, my day to day may not, may not change all that much. From my last question. If, if there are any undergrad or grad students listening to the podcast right now, what advice would you give them? I would say, first of all, reach out to people. You know, everyone thinks that, or at least I used to think that everyone who, you know, CEO or was important in some way or whatever, was getting a ton of cold emails from people like me. The answer is not, it's actually not really true. 
most people actually get very little outreach. And so if you are interested in a company because you want to work there, you want to learn more about it, or you're curious about the space, reach out, just send a message and try and get the person's attention. You may need to send a couple um, and they may say no, and that's fine. But more often than not, I think what you'll find is that uh, a lot of people are really open to those conversations. And, you know, when I was, uh, I got, again, really lucky when I was in undergrad, this class that Bology taught, the startup engineering class that I mentioned, he had guest speakers every week who were executives from technology companies. And they came in and they talked to us. And I was a freshman listening to these people. I'd reach back out to them and I'd go up to San Francisco to meet with them. And those interactions were what formed the foundation of my network uh, in the early days and allowed me to, you know, start companies and raise money and, and do all these things was sending those emails, reaching out to people, getting coffee and, and, and building those. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Andy. It was so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the what in fintech podcast if you like the show then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review it means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners if you want more content from our fintech community please subscribe to our podcast and find us on linkedin instagram twitter and medium at what in fintech there you will find interviews articles videos and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry as always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Gupta.